All right, so we're in, tonight we're going to be starting a study in the book of 1 John, but we're not going to actually get too much into it. Over the next few weeks, we're going, to, we're going to walk through this book. But tonight, I kind of want to just do a character study on who wrote the book. On the author, of course, it's John. And so we're going to talk about him. It's important, this, this is not John the Baptist. It's the Apostle John who wrote uh, this epistle. And uh, so tonight, we're going to look at, the, at who he was the reasons why he wrote this epistle, and then uh, even though it's only a, it's a short thing, it, it's full of, uh, it's full of uh, lots of issues and deals with a lot of issues such as reassurance of salvation, loving God and the brethren. It's going to connect your salvation to loving God, of course, to how much do you love the people of God. And so that is one evidence you'll see. So he's going to give evidences as we go along uh, to know that you can be assured of your salvation. He's going to deal with... Uh, uh, of course, giving a caution and a warning of false teachers, and we'll talk about that tonight, kind of what the prevalent uh, heresy was of that day. And so we'll be talking about all these things over the next several weeks. Uh, but to summarize this book into a phrase, the book is about fellowship with God, which is why we're calling this study the fel- a fellowship uh, with God. And so if you open your Bibles, 1 John chapter 1. We'll read the first four verses. If I can make space here. All right, 1 John, chapter 1, verse 1. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and, has been, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus, with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now we're not going to really get into this, and we'll, we'll come back to these verses um, as we begin to look at the heresy that was being spoken of uh, during that day, what they were dealing with. But this epistle, as you saw, is about having fellowship with God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and of course with each other. And so fellowship is not just getting together and eating food. It's, we get, you know, of course, that's always a good part of it. We like to eat. However, what it's talking, it is coming together. It's the assembling of ourselves as the church to hear God's word proclaimed, to worship together, to learn, uh, to grow, to, to be an encouragement to others. And so this fellowship with others, and again, you'll see later on that that is one of the evidences that you belong to Christ, is do you love the church? Do you love your brothers and sisters? And if there's zero love in your heart for the people of God, John will tell you that you need to, you need to check into that. And so we're, we're going to be looking at these things, but it's about fellowship uh, with God. We'll point back to these first four verses in just a little bit when we discuss the prevalent false teaching they're facing during that time, and we do too, to an extent today. There are other false uh, heresies that are out there that we deal with today, and some of them are very similar to this as well. So with that said, let's talk about the author, who is the Apostle John. Again, it's not John the Baptist or some other John. Uh, we need to differentiate as John the Apostle. John was from the village of Bethsaida. So, sorry, some of this will just be informational. 
uh, tonight, but we'll try to make some application as we go along. But he was from the village of Bethsaida. This was an ancient fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so this, that, that is where he is from. Of course, that's where Peter and uh, Andrew, his brother, that's where they were from as well. Of course, John had a brother. His name was James, and so they're all from this same um, area there in Bethsaida. His mother's name was Salome, and of course, she was the mother of James and John. She was a follower of Christ. Of course, she was a godly woman, a follower of Christ, was one, one of the women who followed Jesus and ministered to him as he went about. And so she ministered to him. Uh, she was present at the cross and uh, among those. And she's also among the women who went to anoint the body of Jesus uh, when they showed up. And, of course, he was not there. He had risen from the dead. And so this is, what, this is who she was. His father was Zebedee. Zebedee was a fisherman. And, of course, back in that time, if you didn't continue to progress in school, you took up the family trade. And so, of course, James and John became fishermen as well. Apparently, he, is, he had been prosperous enough to have his own boat. He had hired servants. And so his business was, was, must have been doing um, okay because he had his own boat and was able to hire uh, help to help him out. And, of course, he had his sons, which is why you have kids. To help you out, right? That's why farmers, farmers, they need lots of kids because they need, they need farmhands. And so um, this, is, this is what they did. So they helped their dad. They were fishermen by trade. This is what they knew growing up. And so this is what they did. Of course, it's interesting is that James and John uh, were also partners with Peter. I'd never seen that or known that till today, actually. But Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 will tell you about that. When Jesus is walking by the seashore and he sees him out there and Peter had been fishing all night, you, you hopefully you're, you may be familiar with the story. Did you catch anything? No, not a thing. So Jesus comes across, comes, he's walking by and says, hey, throw your net on the other side. And there's so many fish that he catches that they can't pull them in. It's too many. So he says he calls for another boat, his partner. Well, who was in the other boat? That was Zebedee and his, his boys. And so they get over there and they help haul these fish um, in, and so they were partners uh, in this trade of, of fishing. Again, you think about these guys; they weren't—I don't know if they weren't smart enough. I don't know, but they didn't progress into uh, in their education, um, and so they were. This is what they were doing. But all this was about to change. The course of their lives would be forever altered when they heard the call of Christ, and so. We look at his calling here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. I will read, I can read that to you. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 21 and 22. It says, it says, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat, and their father followed him. So Jesus is walking, and he sees them. He says, come, follow me. Did they, and they didn't say, hey, let, let us think about it. It says, immediately they followed him. Luke 5, 11, you don't have to turn there, but I can read this to you. It says, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Clearly they had to have some idea of who Jesus was. Maybe they had heard stories. Maybe, maybe they were disciples of John, uh, but they had heard something about him. 
But of course, ultimately we know is the Holy Spirit drawing them. But Jesus is going and, he, and he, he calls them to follow him. And they left immediately and they left everything they had uh, to follow him. It's interesting that it says, again, it says immediately they responded to Jesus' call. And oftentimes whenever we sense the Lord leading us to do stuff, sometimes it's hard just to say, okay, I'll do it right now. We like to think about it. We want to know what the results are going to be. We want to know how it's going to turn out. And so we don't step out in faith because that's a scary thing to do. Now, these guys, they did it immediately, and they left everything to follow him. This would have mean that they left their home. They left their family. Imagine their dad sitting in the boat be like, hey, where are you guys going? i got to hire more help now. they got to have more kids. That's right. So, uh, so he, yeah, yeah, so they left their, they left their uh, home. They left their family. They left their jobs. This was their livelihood to follow Christ. And they had no idea how it would end up. I mean, surely there may have been some people who were saying, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? And some of you may have experienced that before, too, is you sense God leading you to do something, and are like, why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And I'm sure maybe they dealt with some of that as well, because they left everything to follow Christ. Peter, James, and John were part of Jesus' closest inner circle of disciples. Of course, when he, wanted, he had his disciples, but then within the disciples, he had these three who were kind of his inner circle. He, when, he, when Jesus was transfigured on the, um, on the mountain, who did he bring with him? Peter, James, and John. These guys were his inner circle. John was part of that. Of course, you gotta, it's interesting that John refers to himself, it's not my notes, but as the disciple who Jesus loved. And so he thought he had a special relationship with him, I guess. But uh, when you read that in the, in the Gospel of John, this, he's talking about himself in that way. But they were, they were part of his close uh, inner circle of disciples. Peter and John were partners as fishermen. It's interesting that when the church began after the ascension, they were still partners. They were pillars of the church in Jerusalem. They were there. They were kind of the founding pastors, I guess you could say, of the church in Jerusalem. Of course, I think Peter did most of the, of the speaking because he'd read scripture. Who's always talking? Peter. Peter's always talking. But they, they were pillars of the church there in Jerusalem uh, after Jesus' ascension. Of course, on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they were part of the rapid growth of the early church, and people were being added to the church daily. How did that happen? Well, one thing that happened was when the people left, when they'd come and they'd hear the apostles teaching and they would leave, they didn't just check it at the door. They brought it with them. And so when you leave, we don't check your Christianity at the door. You take it with you. You take it to your place of work. You take it to your home. This is what these people did, and the church was added to daily. And so they were, they were part of that. So who would have thought these guys, these, these just common guys, uh, regular guys, these fishermen, could and would be used by God to change the world? Well, hold your place, First John, and go to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, they've just healed, healed a guy. And of course, 
that, of course, before the, uh, the council and the religious leaders, uh, they were not happy about it. But um, in verse, chapter 4 of Acts, verse 13. So now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and that they were, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <clears throat> but seeing the man who is healed standing, uh, standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when, they had commanded, when he had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that, that a, no, a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. <clears throat> But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more, any more in, his, in, his, in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to, than to God, you must judge. We cannot, uh, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had uh, threatened, further threatened them, <clears throat> they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, for they were all praising God for what had, ha- what had happened. For the man who, on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So he'd been lame from birth. And they come through and they heal this guy. Of course, the religious leaders are up in arms. They're mad. They're angry. They threaten them, saying, don't talk, don't speak in this name anymore. But it's interesting what they called them. It says in verse 13, It says they perceived that they were uneducated common men. It says they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. And so when when, when we were to ask people that you know, would they be able to recognize that you spend time with Jesus? Is your life different? Is the way that you speak different? Of course, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and and they had this boldness. Well, so are we. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us who can give us boldness to speak. But these are just regular guys who God was using. These common fishermen. God calls regular people like you and like me to do things for him. He uses people who are available and willing to do anything for him, who have the heart of Isaiah saying, here am I, send me. If that is the heart attitude that you have, God will use you. But we have to have the heart, willing heart, saying, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do. These guys were. They were uneducated, common men. And, of course, they were recognized by the religious leaders as those who have been with Jesus. They were different. Their lives looked different. They spoke differently. They spoke with authority. They spoke with boldness. They were different. Of course, they were willing to give up anything that it took. They did that. They gave up, their again, their homes. They gave up their lives. They gave up their, uh, their families. They gave up their livelihood. They gave all these things up to follow Christ. And now he may not be calling you in here to give up everything you have, but he, you need to, he, he wants you to be willing to do that, to be willing to. And so maybe he's not calling you to do that, but he wants you to be willing to. 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1 Verse 26 through 29 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the, what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, th- even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might, being might boast in the presence of God. Since he didn't call a bunch of, of noble people, he didn't call the kings, he didn't call uh, the, the bosses, I guess you could say, whatever, whatever, however their social system was. He wasn't, didn't even call the religious leaders. Who did he call? These common guys. Common, regular people, which should give us great hope because most of us, we're just regular people. We're regular people. And God used them, and he wants to use us as well. He says, consider your calling, that God didn't call all the big shots. He says he called regular people just like us. And so if you were saved, you've been called by God and empowered by God, are you being obedient to him? John was obedient to the Lord. Are you being obedient to him? You've been empowered by him. Are you being obedient? Are you willing to step out in faith and follow wherever he leads? John and the other apostles, of course, they were willing to leave everything to follow Christ. Again, we must be willing, willing to. That doesn't mean that God's going to call you to do that. He may call you to do something different. But each of us has a calling of God on our lives. And, uh, and, he spe- and he speaks to us, he leads us, he guides us, and directs us. And let me just say this, how does he speak to us? Through his word. I'd be careful, a lot of you hear people talk a lot about visions and dreams and this and that. That's not of the Lord. He speaks through his word. And so it's important for us to know that. Because you hear a lot of things. You hear a lot of crazy things out there. But we need to be discerning. So after, after this, later on, John probably left Jerusalem not long before his destruction. Uh, of course, he, he and Peter were pillars of the church. Peter was martyred. Uh, John was the only apostle who was not martyred. He lived to be an old man. But probably he left Jerusalem not long before his destruction. Church, uh, church tradition tells us that when he left, he went and ministered in and around Ephesus. The seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, uh, those are probably the area, that's probably the area and the churches that he ministered in and ministered to. And so this letter was likely directed to those churches because that was kind of where a lot of, that's where he did uh, ministry after he left, uh, after he left Jerusalem. He did, even though he was not martyred, he did suffer persecution under the Roman emperor Domitian, or Domitian, not exactly sure how you say his name. But church tradition says that John was taken to Rome. He was thrown into a vat of boiling oil in the Colosseum, so the crowds could cheer, and this is how they, this is what they would do with Christians. They put them in the Colosseum, they'd fight wild animals or whatever. Uh, it was a form of entertainment. So they put them in a vat of boiling oil, and he came out unharmed. He's unharmed. And so, Many people believed in Jesus as a result of this miracle. So Domitian, of course, since he couldn't kill him, what did he do? He sent him to Patmos, this rocky, barren island. And he banished him to Patmos. And it was on this lonely island that God would give him the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the final book in the scripture. And, it's, and it deals with the coming of Christ, the establishing of his kingdom, when he's going to come and rule and reign and do away with his enemies, this, is, this revelation God gave to John on this lonely island of Patmos. 
Early church history gives credible evidence that John relocated to Ephesus, where he spent the last years um, of his life. He died around 100 years old. He was the last living apostle and the last eyewitness of Jesus. He was the last one. And so, as you'll see here in just a minute, and actually we'll look at it right now, but John chapter one, or First John chapter one, verse one. says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. He was an eyewitness. It says, I saw him. I heard him. We handled him. Of course, when Jesus uh, had resurrected from the dead and he comes in and he appears in the, in the upper room where the, where the disciples are gathered, he shows them his, his hands. He shows them his feet. He shows them his side. And then he says, will you cook me something? That way they couldn't mistake him as a ghost. He, he was a man, he, and he took, on, he took on human limitations. Of course, he was fully God, fully man, but he would get tired. He would get hungry. He would get thirsty. He, under, he took these limitations upon himself that we have, and he was fully God, fully man. And John says that, for, for that which from the beginning we've seen with our eyes, we've looked upon, We've touched uh, with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, I've seen him. I've heard him. I've, I've been with him. I, he, taught, he taught us. He showed us. We were there when he was crucified. We were there when he, raised, when he raised, rose from the dead. He was there, and he was the last surviving eyewitness of Jesus, and he died around 100 years old. And, of course, he wrote the gospel of John, the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and Revelation. Those are the five, I guess, five, five uh, letters he wrote. We've got to remember that these letters, not, take, not the gospel, but these letters that we read, or these books that we read, they're letters to churches. They're letters that were written to you know, a church, and then they would be circulated uh, to other churches in the area. But he wrote these letters uh, to these churches. So the purpose... Of his writing, that's a, that's a little bit about John. So I hope you know a little more about the Apostle John who wrote this. But the purpose of writing, purpose of writing this, John warns against false teachers who had infiltrated the church, and that's 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 one of the biggest dangers that we have to be on guard for is when these false teachers who look the part will try to infiltrate and teach uh, teach false doctrine. This is. This was happening, so they, these false teachers had come in, they caused division, then they, then they leave. And in the, in, the, uh, in the face of their teaching, of this false teaching, he calls his readers to walk in the assurance of God's presence and renew a, a, the, their hold on the truth. Don't be deceived. And see, if we're not careful, we can be deceived as well. We have to be in God's word. We have to spend time in it. We have to have to read it, have to understand it, have to pray through it uh, so that we can have a better understanding of it because we will be deceived if we're not careful. And this is, this is what he feared, I guess you could say feared, is that these people would be deceived. Even though John moves from subject to subject, in no way does he skim the surface. The theology, the depth of the, of the theology found in the Gospel of John characterizes 1 John as well. The same zeal and passion of that one, him and his brother. Him and his brother, were named, they were labeled the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. And you can read that, that account in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 54. 
Jesus sends them ahead. They go into a Samaritan village, and they, the people in the, the Samaritans did not receive them. And so when Jesus gets there, they're like, hey, do you want us to call down lightning and consume them? Of course, Jesus rebukes them and says, no. <laughs> but they're like, do you want us to call down lightning and consume these people? They had this zeal for the Lord, though, this desire to serve him. Uh, even in that moment, uh, they wanted to do that. But he uses ten imperative command verbs in this short letter. And as an elder of thunder, he roared against the heretics of the church. He went after the heretics of the church. He called them out. He called them antichrist. He called them liars. He called them children of the devil. These are very strong words, very strong language to call these teachers. He says they are children of the devil. Don't put up with them. Don't put up with them. Recognize them. And he wanted them to recognize them as well. A couple of key themes uh, that, you, that you'll see in the book as we continue to study. First key theme is fellowship with God, with Jesus, and with each other. And what is the result of that? Joy. Do you find joy being a fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ here? Well, you can't have joy here unless you first are right with God. But uh, 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, That which we have seen, we have heard, seen and heard, and we proclaim to you that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Is that there is joy found in fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. That's why it's good to be back. It's good to see everybody again. I'm glad y'all are here tonight. Uh, we get to enjoy opening God's word and fellowshipping together and seeing one another. Uh, again, encouraging one another uh, when, that's, when that's necessary. And so we need that. It's important. But John wanted his readers to have assurance of the indwelling God or the indwelling Holy Spirit through their abiding relationship with him. Of course, belief in Christ should be manifested in the practice of righteousness. Is that we don't, we don't live in a righteous life. First of all, we can't. But we don't live a righteous life to be made right with God. We live a righteous life because we've already been made right with God. So we've been changed, we've been saved, and now our life is different. Now our life looks different because we've been saved. And he, wants, he wanted these readers to remember that and to understand that. He wrote this epistle to encourage this kind of fellowship and to emphasize the importance of holding fast to the apostolic doctrine, which is the apostles' teaching. And so he wanted them to hold fast. He wanted them to recognize, and you'll see that he talks about these false teachers, and he, and he points them out, and he calls them out. And so we need to be people of discernment. There's a lot of things out there that sound very similar to what we would believe. So you, you think about what you believe about who Jesus is, who, uh, what we believe about God, what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about sin, what we believe about man, all these different things. You, you could say our statement of faith. There's a lot of things that may sound close, but there's just a little subtle difference. And we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning. So we need to know God's word. Now, this Gnosticism that we're going to talk about, the second theme, he refused the destructive teachings of these Gnostics. But we would say, I mean, I, I would say this is uh, pretty whacked out, I guess you could say. But uh, they, apparently this is a common thing, but it's pretty crazy uh, what they believe. 
But John warned the readers to beware of these false teachers who were infiltrating the church. This common heresy of that day was known as Gnosticism. And it was a basic philosophy of the Roman Empire. And they believed that matter or material was essentially evil. Only the spirit was good. So anything that, anything, so that included your physical body, anything in the physical realm, anything of matter or material was essentially evil. Only the spirit was good. All the material world was considered evil. And John, of course, refutes this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So they're saying that if their spirit is good, well, where does sin originate? In the heart. All sin originates in the heart. And so, are, is the spirit good? No. The spirit is not good. We are not, we are not good people. We all sin, and of course we know Jesus taught that sin originates in the heart. They despise the physical body. They held that in the body was a spirit, like a seed in dirty soil, trying to free it, trying to get cultivated so it would grow, and they could do away with, his, with the evil body. Maybe a modern idea uh, like this would say that, you hear people say that people are inherently good. Well, actually, we're inherently evil. That's what Jeremiah would say, is that our hearts are desperately wicked. You hear a lot of people say, oh, just tr- trust your heart. That's really bad advice. That's like the Disney. Just, oh, just trust your heart. I'm like, that'll lead you into a lot of trouble. And so we have to trust God, not our heart. And so our hearts are evil. Our, our hearts are evil. They would say that it's like this good seed that was inside of them, and it's, but the body was evil. They believe that Jesus did not really come into the flesh, denying the Messiahship of Jesus. They say that he wasn't a real body, that if, when he walked, there's some certain sex of this. Uh, that when he would walk, he wouldn't leave footprints because he wasn't a real person, wasn't a real body. And so they believe that Jesus did not really come in the flesh, and they denied the Messiahship of Jesus. Well, First John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, he says he was a physical body. I saw him. I was with him. I heard him. He's refuting this. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 22, 1 John. It says, uh, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, uh, he who denies the Father and the Son. So anyone who denies uh, Jesus is the Christ, Christ, Messiah, Christ, same thing. It says, he who denies that, it says, is a liar. And it's called Antichrist. And so they denied that, his, that he really did come in the flesh. They also denied the incarnation, meaning that Christ coming and dwelling among us as a human, reasoning that God could never take it on human form because the body is evil. And so uh, John chapter 1, verse 1. So hold your place at 1 John and go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word, 
uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says, in the beginning, Jesus existed in eternity past. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is God. And then verse 14 of John chapter 1 says, the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, uh, glory as of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So denying the incarnation, reasoning that God could, could, not, could not have taken on human form, he refutes this. And then if you go back to 1 John chapter 4, First John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is in the world already. Does anyone who denies this is that it is not of Christ, they are an Antichrist. Christ. And then, of course, we've already read 1 John 1 1, when John's saying, We have heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him. And so they denied the incarnation, uh, saying that Jesus could not have come, but John, he refutes those statements. The Gnostics taught a distinction between the man, the man Jesus, and the spiritual Christ who came upon it. They said that uh, the spiritual Christ came upon him at his baptism, but that it left before the crucifixion. Do y'all see a problem with that? First of all, if it came on him at his baptism, he was, he was, he was born as just, it wasn't God in the flesh until that moment. And then, of course, if he left before the crucifixion, well, that's a big problem because we needed a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sins. And so this is what they taught. This is what they believed. Of course, in John, 1 John chapter 5, John refutes this argument as well. <clears throat> First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there, for the, for there are the three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. And so what this is what they're saying here is that Jesus was not only he got, not only was Christ at his baptism but he was also Christ in his death. He was Christ from the time he was well for all eternity, but when he came into this world, he was God in the flesh at that moment and he's God in the flesh all the way through his death. And then after his ascension. And so he was he is the he was God in the flesh and so he refuted these different things that they believed. And then one of the most destructive things these Gnostics believed, and we, this is something that may sound common to us, but they believe that their understanding of the hidden knowledge made them kind of the spiritual elite. And you hear this, you see this a lot in the, in the charismatic movements and things like that. Uh, maybe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is the spiritual elitism uh, that you see. It's that they believed that they were above normal distinctions of right and wrong. This led, in most cases, to deplorable conduct and complete disregard for Christian ethics. So since the body was evil, they might as well just use it for whatever they want. 
to seek pleasure. And this is what they did, and they taught that. So they lived in sin, and they were, and they were teaching others to do the same. Since the body was bad, they lived in sin and encouraged others to do the same. And this is still a common teaching in our day. And so this is not, the people are no different. And so we see that in our day as well. And we need to recognize that. Just because something has the label Christian slapped on it doesn't mean that it is. You can go to Mardell and be careful there. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are not Christian just because it's at the Christian bookstore. And so, uh, not, and so we have to be careful about what, uh, and be, have discernment about what we see and what people claim to be of God. And so we have to have discernment there. But a long life enabled John to witness much. His task late in life was to help the churches remain faithful and obedient against the rising tide of Gnostic heresy, to walk in the light while living in a world of darkness and to have certainty about who Jesus was and what it means to those who put their faith in him. And you will see that as we move, as we move on throughout the next uh, weeks to come. You'll begin to see that. Uh, we'll see, again, we'll talk more about the false teachings. We'll be talking about uh, how to have assurance of your salvation, all these different things that John gives in, his, in this book. And it's so important because he wrote this plan <clears throat> with a purpose with a plan and a purpose for his readers, and we'll end with this. But Jesus said, or John said in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And what great hope that brings us. He doesn't want us just to, I hope in the end it works out. I wish, I mean, like wishful thinking, maybe my good outweighs my bad or, or whatever. But he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. He wants us to know. And so if you're in here tonight and you don't know that, come and talk to me afterward. Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to a friend. Uh, We'd love to help you with that. Because he wants us to know, not just hope for the best. And so what great hope that brings is that we can leave here tonight and we can know that we belong to him. And so this is why John writes. And so we'll be looking at that as we move on throughout the next several weeks. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for all you've done for us. Again, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you love us and that you care about us and that you want us to know uh, that, you, that we have eternal life. And so we thank you for Jesus coming and dying and paying the penalty of our sin. Uh, we thank you that he came uh, as, a, as a man and that he lived a perfect life. Uh, would die the death that was required to satisfy the law, uh, Lord, reconciling us to yourself. We're so grateful for that. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be as John, be as these disciples. We'd be willing to follow you wherever you lead, and uh, that we'd be spend time in your word, that you give us discernment, and help us to recognize truth and error in our world, and that you'd help us to lead people to you. And so, Lord, that's our prayer. That's our desire. And I pray that you'd help us do this in Jesus' name. Amen.